Welcome to Right Side of the Brain, the podcast created by Interact Stroke Support. Interact are a charity that take professional actors into hospitals and stroke clubs to deliver a live interactive reading service to stroke survivors. And we now also deliver the service virtually, directly into people's homes. Please visit our website, www.interactstrokesupport.org, for more details. Our guest this week is actor Megan Mackay-Smith. Megan is an Interact reader. She has read in hospitals. She has also developed various community projects for Interact Stroke Support. And many of you will recognise her voice as my fellow podcast host for Right Side of the Brain. She's fallen for my charms, and she's she's agreed to be a podcast. (laughs) Don't know how I feel being on the other side of it, to be honest. (laughs) Megan Mackay-Smith, a very warm welcome to our podcast, Right Side of the Brain. How are you? I am good today, actually. Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not not bad at all. Not bad at all. Um, Megan, let's start at the very beginning. Um, uh, why don't you introduce yourself and tell people uh, who you are and what it is that you do? Oh gosh, this feels like a Christmas dinner with my family. <laughs> tell us what you've been up to. Um, so I suppose I span um, a range of things, I suppose. I originally trained as an actor, which was how I got involved with Interact. Um, now I write poetry in short stories. I'm also a facilitator for the charity, or at least when when we could work. Um, and I'm an audio describer as well. So I um, describe film and theatre, mainly theatre for people who are visually impaired. So kind of a range of a range of things all within the vicinity. And of course, I co-host um, Right Side of the Brain with uh, a certain near Jay as well. So, um, so yeah, a bit of a bit of a mix of things, really a bit of a mix of things. So when, when you were growing up in uh, the Northeast, mm-hmm. was it always your dream to become a, a performer or, or something associated with the arts? Do you know, probably I just never fully admitted it to myself because I didn't come from a family of performers or really anybody who was in the arts so I really I joined National Youth Theatre when I was 16 um but I was a bit of a wallflower actually apart from with my family where I would constantly do silly voices and impressions and tell jokes but um, I went to stagecoach from a young age and I would just sort of stand at the back really shell-shocked and get really embarrassed and not really sing or dance or do much of anything now I'm thinking about it so when people say to me oh we always knew you would be a performer I think really because I definitely didn't um, and I got an undergraduate degree first and then I went to be a teacher for a little while so I really tried to not you know, I really tried to not, um, but it just, I don't know, the pull was too strong. And um, yeah, so finally went to drama school at 
23, um, much to the disappointment of my family back in the Northeast, but then they sort of, they came around. Um, but no, I don't think it was always something that I knew that I wanted to do. I thought that it sounded fun, but that it wouldn't be a great life choice for me to do, you know? So, so what did what was your undergraduate degree in and, and where was that? That was in English literature um, and I went to Northumbria and as lovely as the teachers were it was a complete waste of time for me to be honest because I didn't really want to be there. I had about six or seven hours of contact time um, so I spent a lot of time kind of doing other things working in the family business um, fallen in love with Erasmus students uh, who, who came into the university. Um, so I think that probably it was just I figured out that I'd wanted to go to drama school at this point, but I was just too nervous to to go ahead and apply. I was too, too nervous to go through. So I thought, um, oh, I'll get a backup. I'll get a backup, um, you know, which you could argue education is never a, a bad idea. But in my case, I think probably I was just delaying the inevitable a little bit um by choosing to go to university you know Megan let's let's talk about uh how you first encountered uh Interact uh, t- tell, tell us about that that initial journey so I was working on a show with um Evita J the wonderful Evita J who um had think had worked with you for a little while and had had a personal connection to the charity um and we we're in a Nando's, actually. I now remember it's come screaming back to me. We were in a Nando's before a show, and we were speaking about things that we would do if we weren't if we weren't actors. And she said, "Actually, I love my job with Interact." And I said, "Oh, what's that? What do you do?" And she said, "Well, I go into hospitals, and I read to people recovering from strokes." And I thought that sounded like just brilliant. Um, and she put me in touch with you and actually I think um, it was about a year because you didn't have any vacancies because it was so popular Um, and then yeah you got back in touch and I started from there but it was Avida who who put me in touch with it um, and in touch with you and I will be forever grateful big shout out to uh, to Avida J we'll have to send her this podcast and um, and let her know that she's on it (laughs) Yeah, well, she, no, she she's always been a, a fan, fantastic uh, ambassador for for Interact in everything yeah. that she does. I, I'm in, I'm interested in the actor's perception of the reading service. Um, what your initial uh, image would have been of the word stroke, and what the reality has been as you have gone on various stroke wards. Um, could, could you describe that a little bit further for us? I mean, I didn't have any personal connection to to stroke at the time. Um, unfortunately, now I do. Um, but at the time, I suppose, yeah, I had a very... Well, you know what? Actually, the truth is I didn't know what to expect. Um, and I think I went in there with that classic kind of actor attitude if I'm being brutally honest that's sort of oh it's so great to help people um and potentially a little bit patronizing actually from my from my perspective maybe um and I think 
you know, one thing that I definitely realised is it happens to people of all ages. And I think I probably hadn't realised that. I was very shocked to see young people on the ward and people my own age, people younger than me. Um, you'd kind of always assumed that it was something that happened to people maybe over 55, over 60, but it wasn't the case. Um, and just, I suppose, the different, um, how differently it affects people, how for some people they're still in recovery 10 years later, for other people, um, it's a much quicker process. So there's no real one rule, I suppose, not when you're reading to people, not when you're speaking to people. Yeah, it's it's a really wide variety and it's case by case when you go in, you know. What have you learned about A, yourself and B, stroke um, as you've, you know, uh, read to patients at various hospital wards? About patients um sometimes how hard actually it can be to be read to how vulnerable it is and a lot of people when I first went in I think maybe I'm projecting this but it seemed like they were worried about being infantilized a little bit because there's something about that isn't there when we read to people um often you associate it with a child um but actually when when I said well I can read you anything I can read you the newspaper articles it's just and when I said to them it's sort of like having a radio on um it's just for company you know and I'm not here to yeah to, to make you feel childish or to make you feel infantilized but just here here for company and I think once you it was strange actually once I put it in the sort of radio setting of things it's just like having the radio I'm just here to um to keep you company people really seem to warm to the idea and I think about myself as I said it's probably embarrassing to admit isn't it but there is that aspect of thinking that you're so great because you're going in to help people you know and while that's true why it's it's brilliant to help people I think you put the focus on them on the patient it's not about you reading the story it's not about your feelings being hurt either if people actually don't want to engage in that it's not personal to you it's not um your stage it's not kind of a, a performance for you you know it's all for the patient and if that's going to distress them and if it's not going to make them feel better then you know then then you need to just um make a polite exit I suppose um but I, I've rarely had that actually majority of patients have been um if reluctant at first, then really kind of keen once once I've explained what the service is about. But I definitely say that putting the patient at the centre of it rather than giving yourself a big pat on the back and telling yourself that you're doing a, a wonderful thing, you know. I, I, of course, completely agree with that. Mm. Um, one thing that does uh, intrigue me, and I've always wanted to ask other uh, interact readers about mm -hmm. this is that um when when i went into hospital wards in in the the very early days of my time here at, at interact um i was absolutely terrified <laughs> and uh what i would what what i would often do is approach people who were making it very obvious to me that they you know that they wanted you know a little bit of company etc you know yeah. they'd be waving their hand at me at, whatever and it was only via uh, experience that I would become a little bit more discerning so I wanted to talk to you about that initial approach because I think it's it's an issue that really does bother 
a lot of Interact readers. I know that mm -hmm. our training team uh, focuses on this uh, during training days. I, I wanted to ask you, as someone who is now a very, very experienced mm -hmm. uh, uh, Interact practitioner, that whole, about that whole issue of initial engagement. I'm so pleased that you said that you were terrified because I was, for at least a solid year, when I started to work for Interact, I was terrified and I hated, I felt so guilty that sometimes I would dread um, not the actual interaction with people, but that initial approach, that going in, that being rejected. Um, and actually, Laura Reese, the again, lovely Laura Reese, who trained me um, at Royal London, she was very forthcoming about that as well and said, you know, just because you're doing a good thing, it doesn't necessarily mean that it feels great at the time, that it is quite frightening. Um, so I really appreciated other readers being so honest about their experience with it too um the training did help I would say just having um not necessarily stock phrases but sometimes I found myself getting tongue-tied um if somebody didn't want to engage with me and just kind of having those phrases but the the big thing as well which I suppose does just come with experience is what I said before is that if you're putting the patient at the center of the interaction then actually it's not embarrassing for you. It's not shameful if they turn you away because it's not about you. And then when the embarrassment kind of leaves you and you think, well, I can't be embarrassed about this because it's not about me, um, that, that definitely helped. But I was the same. I'd go to people who I knew who'd been recommended by the nurses and doctors who I knew wouldn't sort of shout at me in the ward and go, what are you doing? Leave me alone. Um, so I definitely went in for the easier patients as well. And then, you know, as time went on, I'd give myself little targets and I'd say, I know that person is giving me the evil eye. Maybe, maybe I should go up. So I'd say maybe one patient who I thought wasn't going to be as easy to engage with, I would maybe try and do that per session. And, you know, you'd often find that that wasn't the case either, that they weren't, um, you know, maybe they were just curious, but um, they weren't showing it in necessarily traditional ways, you know. But yeah, it, experience counts for a lot in it. And I just say it, it becomes easier the more you do it, which is rubbish advice if you're just starting out and if you're terrified. But I'd say it's worth the perseverance for sure. Megan, what, what has been your experience of uh, the attitude of hospital professionals, uh, the occupational speech therapists, ward managers, etc., in in relation to our work, uh, it's a great question, and it's been overwhelmingly positive. I have to say, um, at least in in my experience and with the hospital that I work that I work in, and um, you know, I was nervous going in because there is, um, at least for me, that sort of I'm just an actor, and I'm in a building full of people who are really helping in these kind of practical ways and oh how embarrassing I'm just an actor and I've always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder at least the first few times I went in um but the reactions and the understanding and, and of course because they're healthcare professionals that um it takes many different um you know kind of facets to to recover and whether that's kind of the the physiotherapy side, the the speech therapy side, but also just the mental 
the mental side of it, which we obviously deal with a lot, kind of improving people's moods, um, the company aspect of it as well. And I do think that all of the doctors and nurses, and I actually went in recently to um, to sort out the file, and um, one of the doctors stopped me and he saw my Interact Pass and he said, when are you starting back up again? Um, and he really was so excited about the, the prospect of us going back in. Um, so it's been nothing but actually respectful and encouraging. And that, of course, improves your experience at the hospital, but also um, your time reading, because if you know that you've got them on your side, um, then there's not kind of this, oh, this is a waste of time. They're very much, they bring you into the ward, they'll introduce you to patients. And um, that's that's been really, really great. Megan, you, you've also done quite a lot of uh community work yeah for interact as well so additional to um your experience in the hospitals you, you you've you've done quite a lot of that could you describe uh the community work experience that you've done and, and what you've got out of it yes yeah, so i've done um, i've worked with two groups mainly the first one was the pilot project wasn't it i think that we did it at christchurch um, and we ran that initially for a 10 week block. And the idea that was myself and Fayon, who's our community liaison officer, among many, many things. And we would go in and we would work towards a project at the end of this 10 week block. And we would take that from the group, whatever they they wanted that to be. So for the first couple of sessions, we would get people um, engaged with each other and then figure out what it was that they enjoyed. Um, I often think when you're going into a group of people who maybe necessarily haven't worked in the arts or have um, limited experience, this wasn't the case for everyone, by the way, but limited experience with what they thought of as the arts, it can seem quite terrifying um and especially when they were told that an actor was going to come in I think they thought that we would have them sort of singing and dancing and giving it the the old the old jazz hands so when we said you know it's it's not about that it's about figuring out what you enjoy and how we can help facilitate that we're not here to put um our you know our sort of jazz hands you know um into the mix here and tell you what to do um so we ended up doing a documentary, a short documentary type film um, for the first group, which was what they wish people knew about having a stroke um, and recovering from a stroke as well, because a lot of them um, just felt like, again, they were infantilized um, people because of we had quite a few members of the group where um, they had aphasia and their their speech had been affected. And people had judged them for that for various different reasons, because either they didn't understand right away or they were slower to respond um, and kind of the stereotypes which come with that, especially if you don't want to volunteer the information that you've had a stroke. Um, so it, you just said a lot of people were sometimes impatient with them, or quite rude with them, um, would speak to them like they had um, a much kind of younger age than they did. Um, and they felt quite patronized sometimes. So that was um, that was an amazing project to work on. Actually, it was brilliant. And I know that then that group got funding, didn't they, to to keep going because it had 
impacted um, the mental health of the the group so positively kind of coming into that community. I did start that with Fionn, and now I'm just thinking about Chris and I'm going, did I leave Chris out? Because Chris does a lot of amazing work with that group too. He does. Uh, And actually, uh, the the backstory on that is that Mm. that group was set up as a community group and it was you and Fionn who did that wonderful work. But based on the feedback of the group, at the end of it, they, they loved working with uh, you and Fayon so much that they wanted to uh, reconstitute themselves as a stroke club. And so that group then became Interact's first ever very own stroke club at, uh, uh, at Christchurch in Southwark, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, they were a brilliant bunch. And still are, still are. I mean, I, yeah. I saw them. Um, and still are, and still yeah. are. And I know that you and Chris uh, uh, consistently go there, Fayon as well, uh, yeah. consistently stays in touch with with people there. Yeah. Um, but you were also uh, involved, uh, Megan, uh, in a, a project that we did uh, with Leonard Cheshire. And that, that yeah. was, I think, interesting for Interact because my, my own view is that Interact should be engaging with other uh uh, charities and organizations working yeah. and developing collaborative partnerships yeah, with, with, yeah. with other organizations and we had a, a really productive and uh, exciting relationship with Leonard Cheshire uh, which you were initially involved in so could you tell us a little bit more about that? So the Leonard Cheshire um, setup was similar, I suppose, in the fact that we had a 10-week block initially um, and we were working towards a project which ended up being a radio play, um, which if you had have seen, I wish that we had have done a documentary film about going to the radio station to film it because it was one of the funniest days out and, um, you know, a day which the, the members kind of still hark back to as well and go, remember that time when... Francis swore live on air and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we really did have a hoot. And we we had a few, quite a few members of that group actually, who were um who hadn't had a stroke actually. Um they um I guess I, I won't mention the conditions, but um it wasn't just exclusive to to people who had who had, had strokes. And it might be an unpopular opinion here, but I, I don't think that that um I don't think that we needed that exclusivity, you know, um, to dealing just with people from strokes. It was, um, it, it yeah, didn't really affect the dynamic of the group at all. Um, if anything, it it only enhanced it, you know. Um, enhanced it, absolutely right, Megan. Yeah, yeah, it did enhance it. So um, we did, um, again, sort of various artistic um projects with them whether it was making collages or um singing or dancing um, and what was great was because some of the members of um that group were non-verbal and seeing what um unlocked different reactions in them we had a member of the group who kind of hadn't really um said anything or engaged with anything for the first three sessions and then Fayon set up a disco and she just lost her mind she went crazy she loved it um and really kind of and we thought oh okay that's her um that's our way in with her do you know what I mean that's her that's her trigger for um to kind of yeah to well I'm not sure but but, but to trigger either some memories or some joy um so yeah I think that that was a different experience in Leonard Cheshire for sure, just because of the fact that uh, some of the people that we were working with hadn't um, 
hadn't had a stroke. It also really, um, I suppose the Christchurch one was so um, stroke-based that that was what they wanted to do the documentary about. But because of the fact that not all of the Lena Cheshire members had that in common, kind of had to cast the net a little bit wider, um, which did mean that we ended up doing something completely not related to stroke. And, you know, both both were great and and had their purpose um, for, for sure. But it was it was nice to see that. It was nice to see that variety in that second group for sure. Let's uh, let's move on and uh, talk about podcasting. Mm. Now, uh, when, <laughs> when I decided to uh, uh, try this try this little idea out for Interact, <laughs> yeah. uh, I got a, a, an email, or I think several emails from Megan Mackay Smith saying, <laughs> "I, you know, can I do this too?" So, what 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 was it about the idea of podcasting that interested you? I just love to hear the sound of my own voice, Nadia. <laughs> Do you know, it's it's strange being on the other side as well, because I do find myself getting increasingly tongue-tied. Um, you know, when you think of a sentence and you go, oh, I'm not quite sure of the end of that. And um, there's a lot of ums and ahs, which I know is a podcasting nightmare. Um, what was it about it? The fact that we couldn't do our usual work, for sure. So the idea that people who perhaps might not have um company during the lockdown that they might be able to access something um to do with the charity was obviously um really appealing and i i just think conversation's such a wonderful thing isn't it and there was such a lack of it in lockdown at least with new people for me and I, I said to my family and my friends I said oh I really love you guys but we're just going through the back catalogue here we're not saying anything new because nobody's doing anything new nobody's really being stimulated by the outside world so I wasn't really having many interesting ideas and it was great to talk to people where I didn't know their life story um where I I couldn't anticipate what they were going to say and it was just so brilliant to have different conversations um in lockdown and kind of talk to these people who'd had wildly different lives for me and from each other you know and obviously just a chance to get to work with you Nija. I mean what what can I say just uh couldn't couldn't pass up the opportunity could I <laughs> well, well I absolutely love working with you and, and doing the podcast oh, with you Megan I, I can't now imagine anybody else doing the podcast with me so uh, I'm, I'm just looking forward to when you finally have a, a little bit more uh, free time to uh, sure. you know uh, garner some more interviews uh, that, that you would like to do that would be absolutely fantastic one thing I'd, I, I know uh, I've taken a lot of your time Megan but one thing I would mm. like to just touch on if I may is um, poetry and short stories because that seems to have been something that you're very passionate about could you yeah. tell us about your journey to writing poetry and short stories for sure um it started i suppose for me um in the the least artistic way possible and the fact that um you know when people say i was just sort of it's a bolt from the blue and i needed to i was frustrated because i wasn't really working much as an actor or at least in projects that i was really excited about and i think the the tricky thing about one of the tricky things about being an actor is that you do have to rely on other people in order to practice your art form. You know, you can do monologues and you can, you can keep yourself kind of sharp, but really the whole, um, 
you know, process of theater is that you share it with other people that you collaborate, that you work alongside other people, and then you share the finished product. Um, and it was just, I was very frustrated because I'd come from a brilliant drama school where I'd done loads of brilliant projects. And then, you know, you're getting calls to do commercials where you have to stand there and, you know, go, Oh, this is delicious. And you go, yeah, when I was doing Chekhov at drama school, this isn't really what I had in mind for my career, you know? Um, and that's not to dampen, you know, a job's a job. That's, that's not snobbery by my, on my behalf. It was just, I felt pretty unfulfilled to be honest. Um, and I started to write because it was something that I could do. I mean, it's a collaborative process as well, for, for sure. But it's something that I had control over that I could do um, just with very limited resources and kind of and by myself. And then it was a, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who was into, she was an, an actor as well, is an actor, but is into the poetry scene as well. And she took me along and I read something out loud. And Nijay, I can say I've never been more terrified not working for interact not in any audition not, and then it was so um it was so terrifying but you know I got some really nice comments and I, I kind of kept doing it and you know just things started to happen for me I got accepted um onto the apples and snakes writing room which was I got mentored by an amazing poet called Rachel Long um and it all just kind of kind of grew from there to be honest but it was yeah born out of frustration initially and then kind of developed into the love of it I think and Megan, can I just ask you on that so is it is performance poetry different to what I would imagine to be quote unquote oh, normal poetry I mean this is the crux of so many questions Nijay and if I had a simple answer for you because this is a a constant debate between people who do more performance poetry and people who they say kind of stage poetry or um, page poetry you know and there's a lot of great poets that I've worked with that would argue that there shouldn't be a difference you know um, if you write something for the page it should be able to be performed as well but arguably there is a difference between kind of that more slam poetry-esque poetry versus something that you might um that might be nominated for for the T.S. Eliot prize for example although on saying that there are slam poets who have then gone on to win and be nominated for the T.S. Eliot prize so I'm not sure how helpful I suppose the distinction is unless it's just for you um unless like it hinders your progress and hinders your practice but otherwise I'd actually say to not get too caught up in in the detail of it because great writing's great writing you know and you can you can enjoy that through various different mediums I think um I definitely leaned first of all more towards the performance poetry side of it because I felt like that was a way in for me um and a lot of people told me that I should do that because I was an actor to be honest I I now write much more um for the page as I said for for short stories and things um there's definitely that stigma attached to performance poetry, isn't there? Despite the fact that we don't want there to be, there's a lot of kind of mockery of it in, in popular culture. And uh, sometimes it annoys me and sometimes I think it's spot on, you know, <laughs> because some, uh, some kind of nights can be a little bit cliquey or it can be sort of, if you say certain things, then you're much more in favor um, with certain crowds. Um, so yeah, the, 
there is a distinction, I guess, but I, I don't know how, how helpful it is to, to, to dwell on it. I just think it's a it's it's a fascinating subject because again going back to the interact experience what one of the things I always used to find when and again I I stress on the rare occasions when I was actually on a hospital ward was just how uh, how well received poetry was mm. um, and maybe it's the 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 rhythmic beats you know that is inherently contained within a poem yeah. so you had that very successful use of poetry on a hospital ward but the perception of poetry at large seems to be you know it's it, it doesn't seem to have the same uh, level of gravitas say as uh, you know uh, literature or even a, a play yeah and uh, that that always sort of slightly confuses me i wonder i hope that that's changing and i definitely think that since do you know I wonder whether it's because of the fact that poetry from school days isn't really seen as something particularly accessible um or also just particularly fun it's always something that you kind of have to work out um because in its nature it, it's quite abstract you know it doesn't always tell the truth it doesn't always focus on on logic so it's it's such a shame for me that, that and and it does happen often when I say I write poetry I'm interested in poetry people think that they have such a, an idea of of what poetry is and then you talk to them and they say oh it's because I read Ozymandias at school or because and I'll say all oh, right okay I mean I I think that's a great poem um but I suppose the yeah just the the lack of variety often in educational settings but I do know that that's changing I do know that and obviously we had the podcast with um Jacob Samler Rose who is a brilliant poet and um educator and I know his um his uh, collection Break in Silence was put into the GCSE syllabus and I thought if that was in my GCSE syllabus I would have been way more excited about poetry so actually now when I facilitate with younger people I do feel like with the rise of performance poetry, um, the videos on YouTube, even its kind of um, its presence in more mainstream things like bank adverts, etc. Um, I do feel like it gets a lot more airtime than it used to. Um, but there is still, isn't there? There is still that that stigma around around poetry, no matter how much we try and fight it. It does still exist. Yeah. Exactly, because the the thing is, Megan, that my my sort of I, I'd be very interested in possibly writing poetry, mm. but I'd be very uninterested yeah. in in meeting poets, and <laughs> and the the reason for that is that I I have a I have a perception of the poet, yeah, that they are the quintessential sort of uh they put on that tortured artist sort of persona. And yeah. I sort of, I look at it and it just irritates me. I mean, a lot of actors do that anyway. Okay, so, you know, but, um, yeah. Yeah, that was going to be my my rebuttal in sort of that, you know, the, the classic actor trope, isn't it? That they, they wear scarves and they, they talk about their feelings too much. And, you know, there's a reason that things are a stereo, stereotype, I think. You know, it, it comes from somewhere. But fundamentally, I do think that that's, hopefully outdated and a little bit lazy as well because actually I've definitely met poets like that but the majority of them and especially people who I really respect uh, and um, 
are not like that at all actually they're very um curious people very um empathetic people um very witty very funny um so i'd love to get rid of that stigma of the poet with yeah the the big scarf and the 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 pen constantly out and the you know the the tiny glasses just sort of weeping in the corner um because the majority of poets that i know are not even half as cliche as that they're just really they've got brilliant minds and they're good people so if somebody wanted to write poetry what what would be your uh, advice to them just write a poem honestly i know that sounds really simple but just just get a pen and a piece of paper and don't buy into that whole I need to sit and look out at a meadow and have a leather bound book and really think write about whatever matters to you you know and um there was a great I was on a course recently with New Ride in North and um I think he said oh, there was a great quote about something you know you'll hit a brick wall if you start writing about the meaning of the universe, but if you write about a brick wall, you might just discover the meaning of the universe. And I think people often, again, with poetry, feel like they have to tackle some big topic or that they have to have been, had a really terrible thing happen to them in order to access that. But actually, it's just about being interested, I think, in what you see around you, um, in what people say to you, and just writing about what's interesting to you um because it is interesting to other people if it's interesting to you you know the the poetry at least I don't like to read is when people think this is what I should say this is what poetry should say I think that just if you can and I say this as advice that I'm still telling to myself whenever I sit down to put pen to paper and I say look at you with your normal life and your loving family and your you know how dare you sit down and, and write poetry but actually that's that's not what it's about at all it's just um yeah being curious being interested so I'd say just grab a, the back of a napkin even if you want and just write down a line or two or a image that interests you and try not to think of it under that umbrella as it's poetry so it must be in a certain way you know well, on that note, Megan, uh, I can only uh, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time, for uh, uh, sp spending time with, with me today. And also, uh, thank you for being such a fantastic representative for all that is good uh, at uh, Interact Stroke Support. It's, uh, it's because of people like you, you know, that we have such a, a, a good reputation and uh, are so well respected. So I, I can't thank you enough on so many levels. And uh, yes, uh, I, I very much look forward to hearing you uh, as the interviewer, yeah. uh, you know, shortly uh, in, in, some, in some further podcasts. Thank you so much. And thank you for, um, well, for many things, for letting me um, host the podcast, but also just for employing me all those years ago because Interact is such a kind of um, cornerstone in 
in so many of the things that I do. And um, I know we laughed about this briefly and we've got to wrap up, but it was the only time interviewing for you that I've ever been positively discriminated against for my accent. Um, and, oh, yes. Yeah. Well, tell us and, about that. Tell us about that, so We wrapped it up, but that was the only time I'd ever gone in and I'd had such a chip on my shoulder about about, about being from the Northeast because um, I'm from Newcastle. And, um, you know, my accent's kind of not deliberately cleaned itself up over the years and I went in and anything to do with kind of audio or talking or I get really nervous about because of because of my accent um and immediately when I went into the office you were like are you a Geordie I said yeah and you kind of were like oh well everything else is besides the point and just really kind of hired me on the fact that I was chatty and that I that I had a Geordie accent and um, I rang my dad after the, the interview and he said, how did it go? And I said, dad, I think that's the first time I've ever been positively discriminated against for having a Geordie accent. Normally <laughs> I lose jobs for having one. But I said, I think I got I think I got it because of the fact that I had a Geordie accent. Um, and honestly, I just I'd always kind of kept, you know, I'd always prioritized um, the the art as, you know, whether that was acting or whether that was whether that was writing is the main thing, but now, you know, facilitation and sharing that with other people goes so hand in hand with everything that I do. And I couldn't have one without the other now. I think it's so important and I really love working for Interact. So thank you for your positive discrimination all those years ago. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, no. No, it's an ab absolute pleasure, Megan. Okay, uh, lots of. By the way, Megan, uh, and, and this is another false ending. Yeah. Um, aren't you meant to be helping me in my midlife crisis? Aren't you? Aren't you meant to be sourcing the black leather jacket for me? I told you. So. Yeah. What's What's going on here? <laughs> I don't know whether you're keeping this in the podcast. If you are, um, my family, uh, my family business is a clothing shop, and Nije wants to look like Neil Young. Is it? I think was it Neil Young? Uh, no, no, it's Jimmy Page. The images Jimmy I sent Page, to you, Jimmy right, Page. Thank you. And um, is after a black leather jacket, but now obviously the things with it coming into spring. A black leather jacket is just not happening. I told you, so we had tan, we had navy blue. Um, but it's still, I've got a little, um, I've got loads of to-do lists and they vary in terms of kind of whether I can do them today, next week, in a year. And my kind of long to-do list, my ongoing one is find a leather jacket for Nia So I haven't forgotten about it. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just spring. So it's not happening right now, but it will, I promise. It's not happening. It will. We will get you looking like Jimmy Page. Oh, that would be great. So for the third time, after two false endings, <laughs> Megan Mackay-Smith, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest on Right Side of the Brain. Thank you very much, Nigel. Lots of love to you, Megan. That was Megan Mackay-Smith. For more information on our work, please do visit our website at www.interactstrokesupport.org. And if you're feeling generous, please do click on the big red donate button. We very much look forward to your company on the next edition of Right Side of the Brain.